Hello, my Spilling Chai listeners. How's everyone doing? Welcome to episode five of season two of the show, coming to you from Washington, D.C. The word immigration brings up so many different kinds of emotions and images for people. In Trump's America, for me, the word brings to mind families being tear-gassed and separated at the border, children in cages sleeping under aluminum blankets. Under Donald Trump, even legal immigration and seeking asylum in America is treated as criminal. Well, our guest today knows and understands this issue perhaps better than anyone because of all the time she spent researching and studying Stephen Miller, senior policy advisor for the Trump administration and the man in charge of formulating immigration policy. I am talking about Jean Guerrero. Guerrero is an investigative journalist and an Emmy award-winning reporter whose new book, Hatemonger, Stephen Miller, Donald Trump, and the White Nationalist Agenda chronicles the rise of one of President Trump's most influential advisors who has transformed the United States immigration system. Guerrero's reporting spans the United States and Latin America. Her award-winning memoir, Crooks, won the 2016 Penn Emerging Writers Prize, and she is our guest today on Spilling Chai. Hello and welcome to the show, Jean. So I have been reading your book, and this book goes so deep into Stephen Miller's background, his childhood, his family, how he was raised. How did this project get started? So I had been covering the family separation crisis from the busiest border crossing in the United States, which is the border between San Diego and Tijuana. And I became really curious about Stephen Miller during that time period because I I was wondering what is motivating this policy that is clearly disproportionately targeting families who are seeking asylum in this country. You know, it's this narrative that you hear out of the president and out of, you know, numerous officials in the White House that the immigration policy is about law and order, that they're going after criminals and cartels, that this is meant to protect national security. But I was on the ground and I knew that the people who were being mostly impacted by the new immigration policies, such as the family separation practice, were families who had broken no laws, you know, families presenting at ports of entry without any criminal records and requesting asylum the legal way. And they were having their children systematically torn from their arms and, you know, being turned away from the ports of entry. And I wanted to understand what is this policy really about? And I felt like to answer that question, I had to look into the life of Stephen Miller and and really try to understand the motivations behind the architect of the immigration policies. Well, bless you, because sometimes when he's like, I can't even like really watch him (laughs) on the news. So bless you for going as deep as you did. Pro-immigration activists obviously detest uh, Miller for his white nationalism driven immigration policy that he crafts for the Trump administration. What was the most shocking thing that you uncovered while writing this book? Probably like the most shocking thing for me, the most shocking moment was Probably what I read at the Camp of the Saints, which is this white supremacist book that Stephen Miller promoted in 2015 and and was inspired by. You know, during the course of of my reporting for the book, I I read everything that I learned had inspired Stephen Miller to try to get inside his head and really try to understand his thinking. But this book in particular was just incredibly disturbing because 
you know, it, it's been reported that other officials like Steve Bannon have have promoted this book, but I, it became clear that Stephen Miller is the person who put this book onto the radar of numerous Trump officials prior to the Trump administration. And it's a book that depicts the destruction of the white world by brown refugees who are described in incredibly dehumanizing terms that are meant to inspire hatred. You know, they're talked about as animals, as beasts, as teeming ants toiling for the white man's comfort. And the book explicitly endorses violence and hatred against non-white people as a so-called survival mechanism against white genocide, which is this false and crazy conspiracy theory that white suprem- that motivates acts of white terrorism, this idea that brown and black people are systematically replacing white people and that they somehow pose an existential threat to civilization because according to white supremacists, they are incompatible with the values of Western civilization. And I realized, you know, as I was reading this book that the person who is shaping our immigration policy and the rhetoric of our president is a person who is incredibly sympathetic to extremely dangerous white supremacist ideas, ideas that have motivated extreme acts of violence, like what we saw in El Paso, Texas last August, where 23 people were killed, and and so many others. And I realized exactly the level of danger that he represented. And I say that that's the most shocking part of it, because I initially tried, you know, I approached this book with a completely open mind. I thought, well, maybe, you know, maybe Stephen Miller has been misunderstood. And I, I tried to interview. Really? Yeah. And, and I tried to interview like. Keep your mind open, right? Maybe Stephen Miller isn't as bad as he <laughs> appears. Exactly. You know, I, I mean, he'd been really vilified in the, in the media. You know, a lot of people compared him to jo- Joseph Goebbels and, you know, the fictional cave creature Gollum. And I, I wanted to make sure I, I painted as three-dimensional of a portrait of a human being as I could. So I, you know, I talked to his friends, I talked to his mentors, but there was a real turning point for me when I read that book. And, and I mean, obviously over the course of my reporting, it became more and more clear that this is an extremist in the White House. This is a fanatic and it's a case study in radicalization. You know, he, he was radicalized at a very young age during a vulnerable time when his family was struggling somewhat from real estate financial difficulties that his father was having. And he became introduced to these white supremacist ideas, you know, as a teenager and, and became indoctrinated them and in them and is now implementing an agenda and rhetoric in the White House. Um, you know, I, 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 he'd been, you know, people talk about him as like the, the fictional cape creature Gollum and Joseph Goebbels, Hitler's propaganda minister. And I just wanted to make sure that I painted a three-dimensional portrait of a human being. And so I, I, you know, I talked to to his friends, I talked to his family members, I talked to his mentors, but over the course of my reporting, and especially when I read this book, it became very clear to me that Stephen Miller is, an extremist. A radical. He's a radical. Yeah, exactly. He is somebody who was indoctrinated at a very young age. You know, as, when he was a teenager, he, his family was going through a hard time. His dad had lost a lot of money from the real estate business and he was vulnerable. And, you know, these people with white supremacist ideas, like his mentor, David Horowitz came into his life and, helped radicalize him in the way that you see a lot of white supremacists radicalized. And he is now implementing these ideas in the White House. I thought it was so interesting because you have these weird kind of connections with Stephen Miller, like almost a parallel life. You guys grew up in the same 
part of California, you know, you kind of understand the time period when he was growing up, the anti-immigration and anti-immigrant sentiment that was in California at the time, right? Yeah. So a lot of people are surprised when they learn that Stephen Miller, who's leading the anti-immigrant agenda, is from California. But California in his childhood was very different from the California of today. And I know that because I grew up there as well. I mean, I'm just a couple years younger than Stephen Miller and I grew up a couple hours south. And so we grew up in the same time period. And there was an incredible hostility toward immigrants at the time. I remember the Republican governor, Pete Wilson, was blaming all of the state's fiscal and crime problems on immigrants. You know, there were these advertisements that would run on television showing immigrant families crossing the border with this ominous voice narrating, saying they keep coming. And, you know, there was just this idea that everything that was wrong in California was because of immigrants. There were statewide bipartisan attacks on bilingual education, on social services for children of undocumented migrants, on affirmative action. So there, there were just, you know, a, there was a lot of hostility and a lot of actions taken against the immigrant community. And Stephen Miller is truly a product of that environment. California was a microcosm for what we are seeing nationally today in terms of the rhetoric, you know, talk of an invasion, uh, the scapegoating that we're seeing uh, of migrants for, for everything. That happened in California in the 90s, and it's happening nationally today. And, you know, Stephen Miller clearly internalized that rhetoric. And I remember even I, like as the daughter of a Mexican immigrant and a Puerto Rican mom, it was so, that rhetoric was so pervasive that it was impossible to escape. Like I remember my, you know, internalizing some of those white supremacist ideas. Uh, There was a sense of shame with being Mexican. And my, my mom used to tell me, you're American, you're not Mexican, you're not Puerto Rican, you're American. And in retrospect, I realized that, you know, she had been discriminated against much of her life uh, because of her Puerto Rican accent. And so she was trying to help me feel a sense of belonging. So in a sense, I, I identified with the young Stephen Miller who, who wanted to be perceived as American with all of the privileges that that is supposed to guarantee in a context where, you know, non-Americans were being vilified. And he, you know, is the descendant of Jewish refugees who came to this country fleeing persecution and nationalist agitators in Eastern Europe. And, you know, he, he never renounced his Jewishness, but he would write from a very young age about how, for him, you know, American holidays and American traditions were more important to him because Jewish people are a minority. So you, you see him clearly internalizing that rhetoric. Publishing has such a white gaze and just being overwhelmingly white. And if anyone ever doubted this, we can point to the disaster that was American Dirt. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) A melodramatic novel, you know, full of stereotypes about Mexicans that sold for a seven-figure advance. What role did the book have in igniting the Dignidad Literaria movement? So American Dirt you know, Miriam Gerba, a, a Mexican author who, who wrote this book called Mean, she wrote this incredible criticism of, of that book and, and it went viral uh, where she pointed out these stereotypes and how, how, how it was this fake social justice book. And it resonated with a lot of people who read that book and who didn't understand why it was getting so much attention. You know, I, I personally feel like anyone can write about anything, um, 
but but that you know the real issue with the American Dirt saga was was the fact that you know this book it's 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 got a lot of flaws it perpetuates negative stereotypes and but but principally it was elevated above so many other books by writers of color who could write authentically about the immigrant experience I mean, it also it also exposed a lot about the publishing world, right? How they kind of choose one book that is going to be the star book. And then I heard at one of the early kind of launch parties or something for it, they had table settings with barbed wire. Exactly. Yeah, really insensitive stuff, you know, fetishizing the violence that immigrant communities endure and are traumatized by um, and turning it into a party you know, gimmick, um, a, a party, a party, you know, decoration. So that was extremely offensive to people. Just, just seeing how this book had been set up by the publishing house to succeed. You know, first based on the enormous advance that it received, and and secondly, just you know, the way that the publisher worked its connections to get it on the radar of, you know, people who could ensure that it became an instant bestseller. And, you know, it, it's dangerous when these books are elevated above authentic works because, you know, th- then people, you know, so, so many, so many Americans can, can use the fact that they've read American Dirt at, to say like, okay, I've, I've read my, my immigration book for the year. And then they, they, they never read anything about, you know, anything that was written by someone with true insights into the experience. Uh, so that's the danger. And Miriam Gerba and, and others in the Dignidad Literaria movement pointed out that, you know, publishing, the publishing industry has so much work to do to really start to elevate the, the books that, that actually, you know, that, that aren't filtered through the white gaze. It's always, it's always books that are filtered through the white gaze that, that are elevated and not just by the publishing houses, but also by, you know, media, the, you know, critics and, and so on who praise the books that are, are written through the white gaze. Well, it's like we're, I mean, we're still fighting to tell our stories, right? Yeah. Like the struggle is who gets to tell our stories and why can't we tell them? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And, 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 you know, and then, and then people get, you know, some people get upset about the fact that like, I'm a Latina woman who wrote a biography of Stephen Miller because you know most most bio, most political biographies are written by you know older white men who are based in DC but it's it's important to shake that up and you know i am obviously qualified to write about stephen miller having reported on the, the human cost of his policies from day 1 of the trump administration and but also you know having having grown up in the in the same place as him and understanding that context and and also like the fact that I am the descendant of immigrants, that, that is another commonality that I have with Stephen Miller. You know, as much as people want to pretend that, you know, immigrants are biased and immigrants can't talk about politics in an unbiased way or, or report in an unbiased way. We can't be objective, right? Right. There's this idea that we can't be objective, you know, because of our immigrant ancestors or because we are immigrants ourselves. But it's like all of us, you know, every American is, has an immigration story in their past. Yeah, this actually goes perfectly into my next question because there's this quote from you that I love so much exactly about this. You say, for critics, the fact that I'm Latina means I'm not qualified to write about Miller. Never mind that I grew up in Southern California at the same time he did and have spent most of my adult life thinking about immigration like him. 
they prefer a white male 50 years his senior in D.C., uh, quote, real authority. And why do we do that? Why Do you think in this lifetime we will get over our old white guy expert image? <laughs> Um, I, I think we're heading in that direction. I, I think it's going to linger for a long time. I'm not like super optimistic about it completely going away in our lifetime, simply because, you know, it took even me a, a long time to understand how indoctrinated I was in the white gaze. You know, at one point, a friend of mine pointed out to me that on my bookshelf, I had the two of my favorite books, uh, by John Stein, so East of Eden by John Steinbeck and Moby Dick by Ermin Melville. And she was like, why would you elevate those two books by two white men, you know, above all of the other beautiful books that you, that you love? And I hadn't even thought about it, but it's like you, we grow up all of our lives reading stories where the white male perspective is dominant and central. And without even knowing it, we are taught you know, from the time that we are kids to empathize with the white man and to put ourselves in the white man's shoes to the point where we feel more comfortable being polite to Donald Trump than being fair to anyone else. And when I say we, I'm talking about, you know, journalists who are often encouraged to give the benefit of the doubt to the president, you know, not use words like racist or xenophobic to describe him because we don't know what's in his heart. There's just this whole infrastructure in place to protect the white man and to encourage us to empathize with him. And I think it's going to take a long time to dismantle that because it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of self-awareness and, 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 you know, confronting our own biases. Well, I actually had a moment where I was like, maybe this is changing because so many women of color are now speaking up, are in the media, you know, creating our own platforms. But then in January of this year, which seems like it was a lifetime ago, when Trump, you know, assassinated that Iranian general, I and so many of my friends, I was like, oh my goodness, there's going to be so many, you know, Mideast experts on the news. I can't wait to see, you know, this Iranian American I know or X, Y, and Z. And all of a sudden it was all white men, again, talking about the Middle East, you know, all the Iran experts. And I was like, this, why is this still happening? Like it's, it's, uh, it's unbelievable, but yeah, you're right. It takes a lot of self-awareness. I don't think most people have it yet. Well, especially because, you know, it's, it's good that you bring up that, you know, experts on national media, on national television, there's, there's like this idea in progressive newsrooms that, oh, we're progressive, like we're liberal, we, we, we are all for diversity. And so they don't interrogate their own biases to the point where like they, they just continue to put on white experts, white male experts and, you know, disregard everybody else. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Your first book was quote, a daughter's quest to understand her charismatic and troubled father, an immigrant who crosses borders, both real and illusory, between sanity and madness, science and spirituality, life and death. Talk to me about this book. And I mean, I think any, any daughter would kind of connect to, to your journey, but I thought it was, it's almost like magic realism, what you've done. Talk to me about starting this book on your father. How did you, how did you go about it? What was the experience like? Well, it was something I had been thinking about kind of since high school. It, it was sort of what got me into journalism in the first place. You know, I, I was writing these essays for my high school English teacher about how I was doomed to become schizophrenic, like my father, and just a lot of you know, teenage angst. And he encouraged me to 
eventually write a book about my dad. He gave me a copy of The Liars Club by Mary Carr and said, you know, you could turn traumatic experiences into empowering ones. And so that was sort of this seed that he put in my head that I never forgot. And, you know, as my relationship with my dad developed over the years, I mean, for a long time, I thought that my dad was dead because, you know, he disappeared. He, he was on this like cross-border quest to escape this, what he thought was the CIA. He thought the CIA was experimenting with him, sending voices into his head and shocks into his body. And, and, but eventually, you know, he came back when I, and, and he started sharing his stories with me when I was a, a journalist, when I, when I was studying journalism in college. And as he was telling me his stories, you know, I thought they were completely outlandish and that they were made up, you know, that, that my father believed them, but that they weren't real. But I thought, you know, as, as a journalist and as his daughter, I had a duty to investigate you know, if if even there was the smallest possibility that my father had been experimented on, I felt this this like duty to investigate. And as a as a teenager, I w- I did sort of like fall down my and I'm sorry, not as a teenager, but as a young you know as a student at, at, in college, I I sort of fell down my father's rabbit hole, like pursuing him. And you know, he told me about this this thing called MK Ultra, which is this real CIA experiment that was conducted uh, in the 1950s and 60s mostly on people like my dad, you know, addicts, you know, on prisoners, on prostitutes, marginalized communities who who the government knew that if they complained, they would be dismissed as crazy. So my dad told me that like something similar was happening to him. Um, And and so that's, you know, eventually I, I go down his rabbit hole. I start to kind of, you know, I get way too deep into it. And I ultimately realize that I have to write the book as a way of, you know, disentangling myself from my father. You know, my pursuit of my father led me down this very self-destructive path where I was putting myself in constant danger, you know, not taking precautions when I was a foreign correspondent in Mexico City, like, you know, sneaking onto opium poppy plantations and smuggling routes and just not telling my editor where I was going. And and ultimately just felt like I was sort of losing my mind. Uh, and, and I had to write this book and use the tools of my trade as a journalist to finally sort of separate myself from my father. Um, and so then I, I started, you know, you know, investigating my family history, invest- learning that my father had, that had a grandmother who was a curandera, a clairvoyant. She was known as, as La Clarividente. And she provided me with a way, uh, different ways of exploring my father and his hallucinations. You know, I, I, I explore his hallucinations through the lens of, you know, science. I explore it through the lens of the supernatural and I explore it through my father's own lens of, you know, maybe the CIA was targeting him. And ultimately, I conclude that, you know, I, I can't, that my obsession with trying to understand my father was, was leading me down a very dark path. And I had to ultimately, you know, accept that the world is extremely complicated and that there are these gray areas and that, you know, I had to sort of let my father go and let him be who he was. Wow. Which book do you think was harder for you to write? About your dad or about Miller? Which man was <laughs> That's a really good question. Uh, yeah, <laughs> there's there's super different books, um, but in a there is this weird like through line because my dad is like sort of an extremist 
just in a sense on one end of the spectrum where he was always crossing borders, you know, both literal and metaphorical. And Stephen Miller is this extremist who, on the contrary, you know, wants to harden borders and is very rigid and and sort of paralyzed in in his being. Then, you know, with Crux, I was excavating my own feelings and my personal life. Whereas with Hate Monger, it was very much about reporting and being as objective as I could. And so it was, they're very different books. I think that, that, you know, Crux, because it was this book that I wrote over the course of many, many years and was, you know, a part of my own personal evolution, I feel like it was less intense than the Stephen Miller book. I mean, the Stephen Miller book left me a little bit shell-shocked, just like having learned so much about this person in such a short time period and getting the par- the book out into the world in a time when it felt incredibly urgent to do so. Like that was a lot of, that was a lot of emotion. And I, I would say that, that that was probably, probably harder. Wow. well respect my goodness I don't know what I just thinking about it I'm like I don't know which rabbit hole I would rather go down one with my father (laughs) trying to discover my family history or or white nationalism hell with Stephen Miller oh gosh well respect (laughs) what is your advice to aspiring writers you know what inspires you to do the work that you do Hmm. well I would say I mean first of all just don't listen to anyone who tells you that you are not, you know, qualified to tell a certain story. Um, I mean, people have been telling that to me my whole life. You know, I had people when I was a a student talking about possibly writing my memoir. I would have classmates and certain professors just kind of roll their eyes and be like, you know, nobody wants to read a memoir from you know, a young Latina woman, like, you know, you have to be like an old accomplished person to write a memoir, you know, you're anyway, just discrediting me. But obviously, you know, I really believed in the story and kept working on it and had allies, obviously uh, mentors who were really wonderful and encouraging. And I just encourage all writers just, you know, if you believe in your story, if you believe that a a story is important and that you can tell it, and that you are the person to tell it, then you are. And anyone who tells you otherwise is just, you know, jealous or I don't know, <laughs> just don't listen to them. And, you know, the same thing happened with Hate Monger, where I was discouraged from, from writing it. And I just, I just did it anyway. And I'm, I'm very glad that I did. Um, and then the other, the other advice that, it's advice that I received when I was writing Crux, and which I was just so grateful for, one of the beautiful things about nonfiction writing in particular is that it allows us to explore those gray areas in the world. It allows us to sit with uncertainty. You know, I feel like there's this obsession with like knowing and having the answer and being right. And it is part of what is tearing our country apart right now. I think things are always more nuanced than we think they are. And and I had a mentor tell me, you know, when I first was writing my book, Crux, I thought that it was going to be a book about reconnecting with my, you know, reconnecting with magic through learning about my father's family history. And she asked me, she was like, do you really believe that your father is a shaman? And she wasn't saying that in like a mean way or like rolling her eyes away. She just really wanted to know, like, is that really what I believed? 
her name's Susanna Lassard and, and she was a, a great mentor. But I realized that I, I, I actually wasn't sure. And she gave me permission to not be sure and to explore that uncertainty and those questions on the page. And oh. yeah, and I think that that just made it a much better, a much truer book with real integrity. And so I feel, I just encourage people to be okay with not knowing and to, you know, share that with other people. That is some of the best advice I've ever gotten. <laughs> wow. That, you know what? It is so crazy that you just said that to me because I don't think there was ever a time in my life where I needed to hear that more. Wow. That's awesome. I'm glad. Yes, you are awesome. <laughs> um, what are you working on now? What's making you want to spill the tea, spill the chai? You have your book out. So obviously you're promoting a book in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. That's sort of taking up most of my time. <laughs> um, it's just such a crazy time, you know, doing like a book tour from my living room. But, you know, I, I, I've spent the past few years being very intensely focused on very intense books and also just the most controversial subject in our country, you know, covering immigration. Um, and prior to that, I was covering commodities in Latin America and, and it, it's been a very intense time period. And I'm sort of like ready for like a, a break for a little while. You know, I've, I've been thinking about writing like a, a children's book with my sister, who's an illustrator. But at the same time, like I always, every time I tell myself I'm going to take a break and I'm going to like do something a little bit more lighthearted to, to yes. like, for like mental health reasons, <laughs> I, I always find myself pulled back. Yeah. I find myself pulled back into the vortex of like darkness. Um, I just find that every, like, you know, I just find those dark. It's more interesting to write about. <laughs> it's so much more interesting to write about, isn't it? Yeah. So now I'm like, I'm just like, lately I've been obsessed with Tucker Carlson and the fact that he grew up in San Diego, where, which is my hometown. And, and like, I've been exploring like how much of the white supremacy that we're seeing in our country has roots in California, in the California of, our, of my childhood and Stephen Miller's childhood, as I was talking about earlier. But like Tucker Carlson is just such a huge figure. You know, uh, I... I'm so sorry to interrupt, but you know, I have this insane history with Tucker Carlson. I went on his show. Oh my God. To, I debated toxic masculinity with Tucker Carlson. I, I read about that and I, I'm like, I have to find that interview. That sounds amazing. I will, I will send it to you. I'm, I'm actually, I'm still traumatized. <laughs> I bet. Oh my God. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I'm so glad that you did that though. But please talk to me about it because yes, if you ever want to interview me for your book, I've got on Tucker. Awesome. Okay. I definitely will. <laughs> I mean, I'm not, I'm not like planning a book about Tucker yet. Like I'm like still. Maybe the children's book first with your Yeah, sister. exactly. <laughs> That's a good idea after all. Well, Jean, thank you so much. This was such a fantastic conversation. I know you're so busy and I appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Jean. Take care and I'll speak to you soon. Thank you. Great. Great talking to you. Thank you so much. You have to understand that no one puts their children in a boat unless the water is safer than the land. Those are the lines from the poem, Home, written by Warsan Shire, a Somali-British writer and poet. I first came across those lines at the height of the Syrian refugee crisis about five years ago, when the body of Alan Kurdi washed up on the Turkish shore, and those lines have haunted me since. I think back to that poem, and specifically those lines, 
whenever I read stories of the men, women, children, and families who walk across continents, across borders, risking their lives to start over. America used to be a country that embraced people seeking a better life, asylum seekers, refugees, immigrants. But with a man like Stephen Miller formulating U.S. immigration policy, those days are definitely numbered. I hope all of our U.S.-based listeners of Spilling Chai have voted or plan to vote in what is the most crucial American election of our lifetime. If you enjoyed this episode of Spilling Chai, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite streaming app. Best way to stay up to date with all things chai behind the scenes and live on air is to follow us on social at Spilling Chai Podcast. Until next time, my dear listeners, let's keep brewing the chai. 